Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's show, we'll talk about the new guidelines for pediatric screening. For us pediatricians, when we see kids for the regular checkups, there are a number of things that we have to look at. Addressing any other issues, and especially with teenagers, those visits tend to take longer because of all the risk assessment that we have to do. Plus, what can keeping our pets healthy teach us about our own health care? What we've discovered is that the top 10 things that go wrong with us are the top 10 things that go wrong with our pets. And the challenge of healthy eating through the holidays. Take a smaller plate, take the little dessert plate. If it's a buffet, go around the buffet. Make choices, think of it as a food budget. Where do I wanna spend my calories? Our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse. And they're all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, we'll learn how keeping your pets healthy may actually improve your own health. Plus, how to avoid packing on the unwanted pounds during this holiday season. But first, the new preventive screening recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics and what they mean to your child's health. While your child's next visit to the doctor's office may look very different, as the American Academy of Pediatrics just released new screening recommendations, encouraging a more preventive testing in children. Everything from HIV to cholesterol. And here to fill us in on these and their significance is Dr. Elizabeth Nelson, Assistant Professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University and the Associate Program Director of the Pediatric Residency Program for Upstate's Golisano Children's Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Nelson. Thanks for coming in. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having me. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has some new recommendations. First, why now, and what's the significance of these? So recommendations are published about once a year. Uh, the uh, periodicity schedule, which is the schedule that's delivered to pediatricians from the American Academy of Pediatrics, or the AAP, it's put out about once a year just to update pediatricians on the things that they should be doing in their offices for each checkup. So that's an annual, annual thing that takes place all the time? Uh, roughly on an annual basis. But why now are these being focused on? Are, they, are any of these more crucial than any others? Have there been changes that have great significance? So indeed, some of the, um, uh, some of the recommendations have increasing significance. For example, we're going to get to the cholesterol screening and also the HIV screening. We have more evidence that these are becoming bigger and bigger issues in our um, country, and these are things that we need to pay better attention to. So it's good for us pediatricians to pay attention to them in our offices. How are these developed, though? In other words, you mentioned, you alluded to the fact that it's becoming more of an issue in our country. Mm. So are these in response to what, what we see the general population of children and adolescents facing? So they're based on a lot of evidence. Um, these are recommendations that are developed based on what we have available in the current evidence from research, also available from statistics through statistical analysis from the CDC and other governmental um, governmental uh, agencies. agencies. Yes. And uh there's an expert panel that collates all of this uh, data, decides what should be important, and uh, puts forth the recommendations. I guess the one question I would have as a layperson and also as a, a parent who do, I don't have young children anymore, but I certainly can remember going to the pediatrician's office quite regularly. Mm -hmm. How is it possible for the pediatrician to add on to an already very full plate when a child comes in for, a, let's say, a standard annual physical? Mm -hmm. How can they manage to add all of these things on? Well, it's very difficult. Um, for us pediatricians, when we see ch kids for the regular checkups, there are a number of things that we have to look at. We have to look at their growth. We have to look at their hearing and their vision. We have to assess what their diet and what their intake is like, make sure that they're developing normally, that they're progressing through the developmental milestones that they're doing okay in school, addressing any other issues, and especially with teenagers, those visits tend to take longer because of all the risk assessment that we have to do. Adding on more and more things to do during a visit could lengthen the visit, and actually if we were to implement everything that the AAP recommended, a 30-minute well-child visit would take 
easily over an hour. So is it the, is it left to the discretion of the individual physician to make a choice? Yes. And then how frequently? Well, we'll talk specifically what the recommendations are for yes. each of these preventive screenings. But The art of medicine comes when the pediatrician practices and decides what they need to do for each family. Sometimes that could be everything on the list if the number of red flags are raised during a visit. But for most families, uh, there may be only one or two things that a pediatrician needs to address at the well-child visit, and then with frequent follow-up and close monitoring of problems, the pediatrician can continue to follow up on those visits as time goes by. So these are really kind of, this is almost an armamentarium for the pediatrician yes. in terms of the things they can turn to to use, tools they can use and recommendations and suggested things they can use to make sure they've covered all their bases. Absolutely. So let's go and review each one of these sure. and the rationale for each one if, if you don't mind. Sure. So let's talk about cholesterol first. For example, I read somewhere that children ages 9 to 11 should be screened for high blood cholesterol levels. Now, why? So uh, this is in direct response to the increasing obesity problem here in the United States. About 12.7 million children here in the U.S. are defined as being obese, and that's having a BMI greater than the 95th percentile for their age. BMI is body mass Body mass index, index. yes. And... Um, this is becoming increasingly problematic. We know that obesity is a risk factor for heart disease and that kids that are obese tend to be at higher risk for developing things like high cholesterol, which has a direct impact on, on them developing heart disease. So the theory being that if you find it early, you can do what? We can manage it. And management in kids is almost always going to be with diet and lifestyle changes. It's the rare child that would actually need to take a medication like a statin to correct their high cholesterol and level. And is that mostly in the cases where you would take a statin is if you have a familial history yes. or something where it's really very high yes. and, as you said, other members of the family? Yes. The, the treatment algorithms do take into account what the family history and the lifestyle is like. Okay. So basically, the whole concept here is it's never too early to intervene right. if you start to see that path toward either ob obesity or, in this case, very high cholesterol Absolutely. levels. Absolutely. It's crucial to intervene as early as possible. So the next one is called is about congenital heart disease. Mm -hmm. So um, I was kind of shocked because I was this whole idea of using pulse oximetry, which is something they put on the chest of the baby. Explain it's something that. they put on either the toe of the baby or on the hand. And in most oh. hospitals, they do both. Uh, and that is to locate um, any sort of critical heart condition that would require an operation. This is something that we've actually been doing here in the Syracuse area since about 2010 in all of the hospitals, St. Joseph's community and here at, um, and at Krause. Uh, and it's just as simple as putting a little sticky... Um, uh, sticker on the finger or on, and also on the toe of the baby and to see what the pulse oximetry is like. If it's below a certain level, uh, cardiology gets involved and uh, is further evaluated. So that's for all children, all, all newborns? All newborns. Re regardless of anything to do with the risk factors? Yes, and that's from uh, New York State. Those guidelines, the New York State recommendations predated what the AAP has put out. Okay, that's nice to know, yes. actually. Um, and what about anemia? So anemia screening is crucial, especially for the population that I take care of. Um, Which is what? So I work at um, University Pediatric and Adolescent Center, and we take care of a primarily urban, lower socioeconomic status um, group of patients and group of families. We take care of the kids that live in the poorest zip codes here in Syracuse. And they often don't have uh, very good access to high-quality, nutritious foods. And sometimes these foods don't contain a lot of iron, which helps you to prevent uh, becoming anemic. And uh, we often see kids usually starting between ages one and two, which is when we start doing anemia screening. Kids that need either iron replacement therapy or we need to encourage parents to look for high uh, iron containing foods for their so children. So what happens if they're low in iron and what happens if they have Anemia. So if they're low in iron and, and um, are anemic, then um, it can actually impact the way that a child um, develops. It can have um, an impact on their developmental level, how they do in school. Um, and it, that has, obviously, if they're not doing well in school, that has um, significant long-reaching long effects. Long-term effects, yeah. of course. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with pediatrician Dr. Elizabeth Nelson. We're talking about the new American Academy of Pediatrics screening recommendations for prevention. So what about teeth? Why this new effort to look at people's kids' teeth? Yeah, this is something that's also been in the works for some time. Um, 
as we know, fluoride um, has a direct impact on how teeth develop and also on cavity prevention. Kids that have dental caries, um, have dental abscesses because of poor dentition, often also have poor nutrition. It can also be a marker for poor access to care. So something that the Academy is now recommending is application of fluoride varnish um, at well child visits and also the use of fluoridated toothpaste, which is about a year old recommendation. So if you live in an area where fluoride is not part of your, your water mm. stream, mm -hmm. this is obviously more important. Yes. Is it equally important though if fluoride is in your water? Absolutely. Um, kids that don't have good access to care may also not have good access to dentists. So they are not getting the appropriate every six month checkups, they're not getting fluoride applied to the dentist's office. The only place the parent may be able to come for whatever reason is to our office. So if we can provide that service in our office, that's one more method of prevention that we have. So you put some kind of a little fluoride. Yep, it's a tiny little toothbrush. It's a, um, a small paste that's applied to a dry tooth. It's very easy to um, apply and manage. There's some directions that we send the parents home with as far as brushing teeth and eating and drinking afterwards. And how frequently does that need to be done? Um, I, so the AEP recommends at least once a year. Uh, you can actually, depending on what your insurance coverage is like, apply it up to four times a year. And just briefly about teeth, isn't your mouth really kind of a reflection of your overall health? It so, absolutely is. So if, in fact, you're having dentition issues, not only is it reflective, but can it also be a gateway to problems? It can health -wise? be, yes. So what about now the big bugaboo in the room is HIV testing. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Why are we testing kids? So for HIV screening, it's becoming more and more important because we now recognize that in kids that are aged 13 to 24, one in four new diagnoses wow. all overall of HIV is happening in this age group. It's crucial to screen these children. We have so many new treatments and therapies that are available for kids and for adolescents that to not do this testing would be a disservice. And is it presumably through sexual activity that, that most of these kids are being exposed? Yes, uh, through sexual activity, but also because of increasing rates of heroin use. Oh, among, so it's through drug and, use as well. Yes, and, and that goes along with all of the other um, sexually transmitted diseases, hepatitis C, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. But HIV is something that 20, 30 years ago we could do very little about, but now have a much uh, more powerful armamentarium of medications and treatments available to these So this patients. is a simple blood draw and then yes. you do H HIV testing and then it's determined and recommendations are made to treat or not to treat. Correct, correct. Um, screening is done, then patients are often referred, once those the patient screens positive for HIV. They are often referred to an infectious disease specialist for further management. And obviously, I think the big push these days is to is to control the rate of new infections. So mm. if you start to treat children when they're young, if they're carrying the, the virus, then clearly they'll be less apt to spread it. Yes. So there's all kinds of there's all kinds of preventive reasons. measures. And actually, since 2010 in New York State, uh, there's been a requirement to offer an HIV test to everyone 13 to 64. Um, at least once during a uh, their visit to the doctor or visit to the hospital. Now depression. Clearly mm -hmm. that's been a very big concern. Yes. Much less, I would think, with the very young children, but much more so with when they hit the teen years. So mm -hmm. very quickly... They do some kind of a screening, a, a questionnaire. What is it? There's a, a few different ways to do this. We know that suicides are the leading risk of, or the leading cause of adolescent death. Um, there are a number of questionnaires that we can use. Um, one common one that's quick to use in the office is something called a PHQ, not a PHQ two. I'm sorry, a patient health questionnaire two. Two questions get you a quick screen, and then you can further determine if the child needs treatment after that. My question for this one and the next one we're going to talk about briefly is drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about drugs and alcohol, and then I have a question for both sure. in terms of how you assess these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So there's this thing called the CRAFT yes. questionnaire. Tell me about that. So it just assesses certain um, points of risk for a kid. If they're getting into a car with somebody that's high or, has, uh, or if they themselves have used drugs or alcohol, if they've used these things while they've been by themselves, if they have ever been told to stop using them, if they use them to relax. Um, those are all points of risk that can indicate that a child or an adolescent is having problems. I don't want to run out of time. Basically, the question I would have for both the depression screening and the drugs and alcohol, do you think you're getting potentially valid, credible responses from kids in that setting is the question. Yes, I think so. If we have developed a good relationship with the adolescent and with their family, we're interviewing the adolescent alone, giving them that private space to answer questions, then hopefully they can open up to us and be honest so we can get them the help that they need. That's really helpful and, yeah. and very important. Thank you so very much oh, for thanks coming for having in. Me. This is 
Very, very important. And as you said, the hope would be that each individual physician has to make a choice as to what to do when. Yes. But the notion that you have all these tools and these things to be looking out mm-hmm. for will be protective of our kids. Indeed. Thanks so much. My guest has been Dr. Elizabeth Nelson, Assistant Professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University and the Associate Program Director for the Pediatric Residency Program for Upstate's Golisano Children's Hospital. Next up, how keeping your pets healthy can affect your own health. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Pet owners know how their pets make them happy, but a growing body of scientific research is showing that our pets can also make us healthy or healthier. That's the reasoning behind a new project funded by the National Institutes of Health that's focusing on keeping pets healthy and thereby increasing one's own health. Well, here with more on all of this is Christina Pope. She's the director of Upstate's Health Sciences Library. Welcome, Christina. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. So what is this notion of the Healthy Pets Project? Tell us a little bit more about it, and why is an um, academic medical librarian developing these kinds of healthy pet workshops? Right. So health librarians are committed to doing what we can to provide health information to enhance the health of our communities. And we do that to, for our entire community, our students, our clinicians, our patients, and their family members. So health is a big thing for us. But as we go out in our community, we really see exhaustion. People are tired of listening to us, telling them how to live a healthier lifestyle, exercise more, eat better. So what we've discovered is that the top 10 things that go wrong with us are the top 10 things that go wrong with our pets. So in other words, the same health concerns that we may have really are experienced by our pets as well. Exactly. Give me some examples of that. So for example, um, skin allergies. So skin allergies are a real problem for us and for our dogs one of the the number one health concern for dogs really and for cats it's bladder and urinary tract disease so there are a lot of people who are probably listening who have had urinary issues well and if you've got a cat you know your cat's been having that too same thing how about things like diabetes yes diabetes is the number seven uh, health concern for cats right now Wow. Yeah, and I think it's a little higher up for people. Yeah. So in other words, what you're really saying is that there are really kind of concurrent health concerns in your pets as in mm-hmm. yourself, but that people are somehow uh, inured, turned off, oversaturated, what have you, with mm-hmm. health messages in the community. That's right. And that perhaps an, an, an alternative or a maybe more effective way to reach people and raise their health IQ mm-hmm. might be through their pets. Their pets. So we offer our workshops and we talk about these conditions and we draw the parallels. So if you are if we're talking about diabetes, you know, we will talk about nutrition as a manner of helping to control diabetes. Um, the same thing for urinary issues. Um, for skin issues, you know, we'll talk about, again, nutrition and different types of skin care because a lot of the things that you would do for your pet are the same things that you would do for yourself. So is it kind of like a backdoor approach? It is a backdoor <laughs> approach. It is. We are trying to be a little sneaky here yeah. um, to encourage people to, in our jargon, learn those transferable skills and hope that they stick. And... The other thing that I, 
we discovered is the number one place for people to go to to look for health information about themselves. It's PubMed. It's free. And it's uh, funded by the NIH and the National Libraries of Medicine. Well, they have a whole section on pet health. Who knew? So if you learn how to search it for your pets, the same skill applies to yourself mm. in looking for the information. And un- unfortunately, all too often we take we take much better care of our children or our pets than we do of ourselves. Yes. So that's kind of that whole notion of mm-hmm. trying to transfer those that knowledge and perhaps turn it back and ap- apply it to our exactly, own Exactly. Exactly. So if you know if you were offering two workshops both on nutrition and one is how to great get a great pet food for your dog or cat versus nutrition for you, which one are you going to go to? <laughs> Very interesting. And so how did the NIH get involved in all of this? Sure. I mean, you alluded to the fact that they co-sponsored mm-hmm. the, the PubMed site and all of that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it sounds like there's obviously been some research supporting yeah. these, this whole notion yeah. for them to undertake something of this nature. So the NIH provides funding for the National Libraries of Medicine. And so what I did when we were looking at this idea is I approached our local region, it's the Middle Atlantic region of the National Network for the Libraries of Medicine, and I asked if they would be willing to fund us. And I put a proposal together, and they said yes. So, so is this unique to currently to this region? It is unique to this region. Um, to my knowledge, there is no one else in New York State right now doing something like this. And there's a lot of interest in it. Um, As we speak in my professional organizations and we do these workshops, people are coming to us and saying, how could we replicate this for our community? Because with this funding, it's free. There are no charges um, for participants to come. It's just a matter of getting the workshop in the right location for the right group of people. And as I said, there has been research that really has supported this notion that a healthy dog makes for a healthy owner kind of idea. I mean, that's a simplification, but very, very interesting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Health Sciences Librarian Christina Pope. We're talking about the Healthy Pets Project. So in fact, this is NIH sponsored. Are there other Mm -hmm. people helping with this in terms of the sponsorship? Have you been able to garner a wider range of support? There are. So as an academic medical librarian, we're great at finding people information. (laughs) I'm sure. Research is your thing. Research is our thing. Um, But, you know, how does it really link to pets? You know, not our specialty. So I reached out to the Veterinary Medical Center of Central New York, and they are providing all of our veterinary pet information. And so... They provide sort of one half of the presentation, and then, as I said, we parallel that to the people information. So give us a feeling for how this works. So you have workshops. Mm -hmm. Are they over a period of time? Is it a one-shot deal, you know, six weeks? I mean, how does it it work and what takes place? Give us a feeling for it. Right. So we have a a variety of workshops. Uh, So we have our basics workshop, which is just a little bit about everything, how to be a more prepared, better prepared pet owner. And we talk about nutrition, and we talk about diabetes, and we talk about nail care and skin care and exercise. Exercise, yes, all of these things. And again, make that linkage back to people. Mm -hmm. And then once we had our first workshop, we had so many questions, we quickly understood that we were going to have to have more than one type of workshop. So that's where nutrition came. From. And so we have a whole separate workshop. It's a 90-minute workshop on nutrition. The basics is three hours. Okay. Um, so there'd be a preliminary one that you might choose to go to mm-hmm. that's three hours. Yes. And then you could subspecialize, so to speak, if you had more questions, to just yes. go to a 30-minute, you mm-hmm. said? 90 minutes 90 for minute nutrition. 90 minutes nutrition. Three and, for the basics. And are there others as well? We, we do have a few that are ready to go and uh-huh. a few that are under development. Um, So we have the basics in nutrition, and we have a winterizing your pet. Uh, We also have a subtopic that we've developed on Lyme disease. Several of our communities are really interested in that. So we have a little module that we can add in. 
um, because of the partnership between the vet practice and the libraries, myself and Fayetteville Free Library is also a partner right now. Um, when people have a special interest in their community, we can add those in. Um, and as you said, this is free to the public. It is free to the public. How do people find out about the schedule for when these are taking place and sure. where they take place? Mm-hmm. So right now, they are taking place in our area libraries. Fayetteville Library, uh, the Liverpool, Betts, um, out in Canastota. The best place to look for upcoming workshops is our Facebook page, of course, The Healthy Pet Project. You can find us on Facebook. If a workshop is not convenient to you, all you need to do is contact us and we will work with you to get that workshop into um, your library or some other place that is more convenient. Are you attempting in any way to measure the outcomes of this project? I mean, it would seem to me if you're getting national health funding, Mm -hmm. often they ask, well, what have you done with this money? Does it really work? Yeah. (laughs) Have you really made any, you know, have you made any progress Mm -hmm. here? So are you attempting to do that? And if so, how? So we do measure satisfaction with the workshops. Um, the instruction, the information that's provided, do you think you will be able to use this information uh, for your pet, for yourself? So more like a questionnaire. Uh, More like a satisfaction questionnaire. Uh, It is intriguing to uh, consider that we could do sort of a pre and a post. Uh, That is an entirely different level of funding. So in other words, to do a pre-test, so to speak, mm-hmm. and a post-test, it would be more on health information, where, what the individual knows beforehand and then after? Well, we could do that. We could do a pre and a post. Um, but you could also do a pre and a post on your own individual health. I see. Or your own health practices. Mm-hmm. So after, um, before attending the workshop, what are your nutrition practices. Mm-hmm. How do you go to the grocery store? How do you read labels? Mm-hmm. After the workshop, did that change the way mm-hmm. you read labels for your pet, but for yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds very sound. Is yeah. it something you think you might undertake? You said it requires more funding going forward. Of course, more funding. <laughs> uh, we might. Mm-hmm. Um, the Our funding uh, agency is interested in funding us for a second year. Oh, great. So that might be something that we can bring into it. Well, just at the bottom line, Facebook page, Facebook page, Healthy Pets Project. Healthy Pet Project. That's Healthy Pet Project. Pet, yeah. That's the way to find out mm-hmm. more information about it. And I want to thank you so much. It's very, very intriguing and very interesting, this whole backdoor notion that somehow you will really reach people more mm-hmm. effectively and more um, efficiently in a way by getting them focused more on the health of their pet and yes. therefore keeping themselves healthier. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Christina Pope. She's the director of Upstate's Health Sciences Library. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up 20 to 1, or like a bridge over troubled waters. Well, folks, once as a little guy, I was sitting with my dad in a doctor's waiting room for I can't remember what, but I do remember I was reading a Highlights for Kids. Remember those magazines? And I remember reading a riddle. If the average amount a river's water level rises is three feet, how high do you have to build a bridge over it? Four feet? Six feet? Twelve feet? None of the above. I thought about it and thought about it and finally said 12 feet just to be safe. When I turned the page to whatever for the answer, wasn't I surprised to see none of the above? The bridge must clear the river's flood level, and that tricky riddler didn't tell us how high that was. Now, that riddle is a lot like how strong Do you build a relationship to survive the tough times, i.e., for better and or for worse? Or like Paul Simon, like a bridge over troubled waters. (laughs) Well, 
Husband and wife psychologist researchers Gottman and Silver have done wonderful work on this issue. They videotaped couples living in their marriage lab 24-7 for several days. And they rated everything they said from nice to nasty and kept in touch with the couples for years. Now, my riddle for you is how many nices for every nasty that a couple have to say to stay together long term? One to one? Two to one? Five to one? Turns out at least five to one with the odds of perking along happily, chronically, if that's the right word for relationships, rising steadily to 20 to 1. Gave the best odds. Now, from being married chronically ourselves, 30 plus years, my wife and I know that the waters do get a bit rough. And it's not always easy to be nice when we disagree fundamentally and we feel mad. But our solution is, it's always Pammy's fault, <laughs> right, Pammy? Oh, I can hear her now. Be nice now, Pammy, be nice. <laughs> in any event, I do a lot of couples counseling, and couples in trouble almost always start saying something similar. The problem in our marriage is the other person. Now, Every couple has spats, and if they're just occasional, just do whatever you do to stop the blame game. Fix your part in the mess. Make up and shift back to 20 to 1. But if the waters are raging nonstop, what to do to keep the bridge connecting you and yours aloft? Step 1. Stop the nasties. Cease fire. Step 2. Cool your own boiling blood. Deep breaths, go for a walk, a movie, by yourself if need be, whatever works for you. Step three, put aside your own desire to be heard and find a way to listen closely to the other person. Maybe, long term, read one of Gottman and Silver's books like The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. If you're really stuck, and you're still committed to making it work, find somebody you're comfortable talking with who can understand both of you to reawaken your interest and delight in each other. Remember, being stuck can be pretty miserable, but you made it fun once, you can do it again. The challenge of being joyful together has been with us forever. For all of us who are taking it on, Here's an inspiring poem from someone you may never have heard of, an ancient mystic, Rumi, R-U-M-I, Rumi. Come on, sweetheart, let's adore one another before there is no more of you and me. Come on, Pammy, let's adore one another before there is no more of you and me. And come on, all of you out there, lover-dovers, Let's adore one another before there is no more of you and me. I'm Dr. Rich O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Avoiding packing on those unwanted pounds this holiday season. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. season has arrived and with it comes all the holiday parties and the tempting goodies that can really put the pounds on you before you know it. So I had a chance to talk to Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian nutritionist with Upstate Medical University, and she's got some tips on how to survive this time of year. 
So what happens to us this time of year? I mean, we kind of go crazy. Thanksgiving comes and we certainly, it's, a, it's an eating frenzy and then we go on from there. Well, I think what happens is our defenses tend to go down in terms of that because we start with Thanksgiving. Sometimes it even starts with Halloween and the candy. <laughs> That's true. Um, forgot so that. So <laughs> it actually starts in October for me a lot of times working with clients. Right. And I see the Thanksgiving in terms of that meal that we're only going to get something once a year. But if you really look at that meal, it's things that we have a lot, but we have that mental idea that, oh, I have to have the pie or I have to have this. It's true. And I think that's what happens to clients when I work with them. They're like, oh, well, it's Thanksgiving and it's one day and it is one day but you can still take that one day I think and say well I could have pumpkin pie instead of mashed potatoes because I can always have mashed potatoes and uh, unless you really like the mashed potatoes that my sister fixes my son does <laughs> um, and then I think you have to make those kinds of choices and I think that's what happens sometimes we don't make the choices we consider it a one day type thing but I find that one day leads to after Thanksgiving then you might have holiday parties and then you have the cookies and then you have the cookie dis- you know trays and chocolates everywhere chocolates everywhere and the availability of food and then I think sometimes we're like oh it's the holidays but one thing I, I always say to clients is the holidays will always come they're always here so it's not a big surprise but we tend to like oh it's Christmas oh it's Thanksgiving it's like yep comes every year but you need to think about that and say I want cookies okay if you want cookies I think that's an important thing sometimes people go with the idea that I shouldn't be having them but I really want them and then they tend to overeat because of that guilt feeling it's interesting. It's kind of a vicious circle there, it isn't is. it? But it's it's interesting also that that concept of it. It's once a year, so you better get it in. I right. mean that that it's kind of that rush, you know, the food rush, right. the frenzy. It's right. almost like a food frenzy. I think. Oh yeah, and I think it's just because of that. There's and sometimes it's associated with families that there's a certain thing that you know your aunt or your mother or your grandmother made, and they make it at the holidays time. And it's like, well, you could make it other times. We just tend to associate with that, right. so then we tend to think of that as special thing. And there are a lot of things that. We, you know, cranberry stuffing, different stuffing that people only make at certain times. And if that's that special time that you want that food, I think it's important for people to say, well, I'm going to have it. But do I need the other stuff that goes I with it? I think that's your key point here that's very important is this issue of making choices. That it's not you have to have it all, but you can yes. make very, very careful choices. Mm-hmm. And that it will come again, God willing. You'll have it the following right. year. So what, do you, what have you seen? What's an average weight gain? Well, it depends on the clients. You know, I've read different things, and they'll say five pounds, seven pounds, three pounds. You know, I really think it depends on the client in terms of it because I think what can happen is it can creep up on you. It's not like, oh, I ate Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas, and, uh, you know, in two weeks I gained seven pounds in terms of it. I think it's with anything in terms of, of weight gain. It's, it's a very gradual that we don't tend to see, and we think we'll catch it. Okay, it was Christmas. Okay, I had a few cookies. I'll catch that. But then that tends to lead us into other sometimes not as well good choices. Yeah. And that the weight gain slowly comes in terms of it. Or we decrease our exercise because we're so stressed with making cookies or shopping and those kinds of things. Yeah, speaking about stress, it seems to me stress has to play a huge role in this whole picture because it is a stressful time of year. Mm -hmm. The whole stress of everybody needing, you know, the stress of having to be happy when maybe your life isn't so perfect. And, um... It seems that people will often eat for comfort reasons. Oh, definitely. And I think that's a key thing that people need to realize, not only at the holidays, but anytime there's so much emotional eating that we do. Do we eat because we're hungry? Um, probably a lot of the times people don't. We eat because we're mad, sad, glad, um, all of the above, frustrated in terms of it. And we use eating as, as an outlet. We don't think, okay, I'm eating these cookies. Do do they taste good? Sometimes people eat things and then they just say, well, I ate it and then I'm upset and I'm mad at myself and now I'm I'm going to go off my diet. We get into that whole negative cycle as I tell people. It's kind of like a little the rat on the little wheel. We just get negative, negative, negative. So interesting, Maureen, because I remember reading somewhere recent studies that have shown that the first bite or sometimes even the first and second bite are the most pleasurable of something that you eat. Mm-hmm. And then somehow we have this compulsion to continue, even when it's not particularly pleasurable after that, to eat a particular thing. Yes. So yes. it's it's interesting that somehow if you could develop this concept, and I think I read it, it's termed mindful eating, that yes. you're paying attention to how it is you eat as opposed to just kind of shoveling it in. Oh, definitely. And that's a, a, one of the biggest new concepts. I mean, we've been teaching it for a long time, but now there's books out there, studies out there, and it's always saying, that do you eat with your stomach no more than likely we eat with our mind and we eat for the emotional type thing and when you an interesting thing is when you look at how kids eat kids are like two bites three bites they're done but as adults what do we finish your meal 
finish that, or you don't get dessert, finish your plate type thing. So as adults, I think we've kind of lost that sense of, am I truly hungry? Do I really need this? Because we think we have to finish it. Or, you know, with work schedules, you only have a half hour, so you eat. You might say, I'm not really hungry today. What's <laughs> happening? But we eat because it's lunch, and that's the only time I'm going to get that food. And that's where a lot of that emotional, mindful concept comes in. And I think it's a it's a... It's a great concept. It's a tough concept for people to think about because everyone is so geared towards dieting, lose the weight, you know, cut the calories, not that, not say, I like cookies. I like cookies. Have a cookie. But to me, if you're going to have a cookie, have a cookie that tastes good. It, you know, to and me, maybe the just choices, one. <laughs> right. And really savor, like you said, in terms of the one or two, three bites, taste the cookie. Are you tasting it because it has a memory associated with it? Are you tasting it because it's really a good cookie? Um, you know, there's, I always tell clients, there's, I consider it cheap chocolate and good chocolate. If you like chocolate, get a taste of good chocolate. If it's cheap chocolate, it's like, it's had that funny taste, but people keep (laughs) eating it because it's chocolate. So I think that's a mindful thing that people need to realize. And it's it's a really tough concept for people to work on. So during the holidays, what are the main culprits? I mean, obviously, well, let me go back to another question first, actually. What do you do? Isn't it rude if you're going to a party or you're at a buffet there's this sense that you're not making merry. You're not, you know, you're not having that drink or you're not having that, uh, I don't know, pigs in the blanket or whatever that's being Mm -hmm. passed by. I mean, how do you do it artfully? Well, you can do certain things like, personally, I don't like um, Bloody Marys, but if I really wanted to pretend that I wanted to have a drink, I could have a Bloody Mary. I wouldn't drink it. I'd be sipping (laughs) on it. Oh, that's interesting. But I would have something in my hand. Sometimes the minute you have something in your hand, your host is, oh, they're set. They're all set. I can go on to the next person. If you don't have something in your hand, (laughs) it's that concept, you know, or even if you have a glass of water um, or get a fizzy soda, seltzer water, something in your hand or a plate of something. But again, take a smaller plate take the little dessert plate if it's a buffet go around the buffet look at make choices think of it as a food budget where do I want to spend my calories where do I really want to put that food is it in macaroni and cheese that somebody makes and is delicious or is it in shrimp or is it in carrot sticks most people eat the carrot sticks because they're like I really don't want these carrot sticks (laughs) you know but if they fill your plate up and you're like okay my plate is full again it's that mindful eating the visual when your plate's full you're going to feel more satisfied too. So basically, that's a very clever idea though about holding a drink that you don't want to drink. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think obviously, as you said, it, you, you, you appear to be having a wonderful right. time or you appear to be <clears throat> partaking in the making merry, but you don't necessarily pack on those calories. That's right. So that leads me to <clears throat> ask you, is alcohol one of the main culprits in terms of... Oh, I of- think it can be, definitely, in terms of, you know, if there's an eggnog drink, if there's a specialty-type drink, if there's, like, a pina colada that you don't typically have. Again, when you look at that, the key with that is, you know, is there cream, is there extra calories from the um, the, the alcohol? And then the other is the, the size of your glass. How big is your wine glass? You know, when I talk to clients and I say, oh, we're serving sizes of five ounce, they look at me like, what's that? It's like, well, it's probably two times what your glass size is. You know, I see things on the movies and they have those giant wine glasses. And I think, oh, wow, that's probably about 20 ounces of wine, you know. But again, to people, it's a wine glass. So again, look at the size of it. Can you get a smaller? Can you only fill it up halfway? Could you put some seltzer in it? If you do like wine, make your own little wine cooler. Those kinds of tips. That's great. And I also love this idea of taking a smaller plate if you can because mm-hmm. it really it, it kind of forces your forces your hand, so to speak. Right. And, and the limits the what plate, you can take. The more you're going to fill because, again, that concept is fill our plate, eat what's on our plate. So the smaller plate and make those decisions that make it something that you really want make it a choice don't make it something that I'm just eating this because it's here if you really want that food just like we talked about savor it taste it and enjoy it if a couple bites do you you're fine you can leave what's you can go on to the next food in terms of it I think these are great tips very 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 interesting also so it seems to me also that a lot of the stress of the holidays comes around this whole gift giving idea Mm -hmm. I mean people want to give the perfect gift and often get the perfect gift. So how, uh, how can you incorporate some healthy food choices in, 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 in gift giving, for example? Well, I think a couple interesting concepts are, um, I like different, you know, diff- 
play around with different grains. And again, sometimes people like quinoa or bulgur or barley that maybe people don't do a lot with. So that could be something you could say, go into a bulk food section and get little small packets and make them up and then maybe give someone a special pot to cook it in. Um, I love all the new different vinegars that are out in terms of the flavored vinegars, the balsamic vinegars. But again, would someone want to buy a giant bottle? But maybe you could buy them a bottle and then you can buy them a little container, kind of something nice to go with it for pouring in that. Um, different oils, different herbs. Uh, I like to garden. I think that would be a cool thing that you get people a bunch of heirloom seeds and then get the garden garden equipment to go with it, those kinds of things, where you can take off on the healthy things that we're talking about, like, oh, maybe you buy someone grapeseed oil that they would never spend the money to buy, and then you buy them a little fresh herb plant to go with it, those kind of neat concept type things. Um, you could do family, we've done like family movie nights, you buy the, the movie to go for the family, but then you can buy like, you know, low-fat popcorn or graham crackers, um, you know, not the typical fruit basket all the time, those kinds of things. Those are great ideas. Those really are. And you've, obviously you've done them. I like to do that. Kind of, I like the, the theme ideas sometimes. You know, I mean, coffees and teas, you can do all the, you know, with all the different teas that are out, you could buy a little, a nice teapot or just someone to have a, 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 their own little teacup and then the different herbal teas that are out there. Or the oh, green teas types. and black teas that green are supposed to be healthy, healthy for teas. you. Green teas, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's wonderful. So basically what you're saying is this, there are a lot of choices in terms of both gift giving but also the way that you <clears throat> manage the holidays in terms of how you you know um, make your own food choices right and I think you have to enjoy the holidays that's an important thing don't make it so you know you have to do the, the cookie exchange and you're stressed out and then you're eating five cookies while you're batching them up because you're just driving yourself crazy in terms of it I think sometimes we have to let some things go and say that has to be shelved for now, and I have to do what's going to work for me. But still enjoy the holidays, but also enjoy the people. I think that's an important thing. Sometimes, you know, at the buffet, well, don't put yourself at the buffet table. Put yourself farther away so you can talk to people. Get your food and get out of that area in terms of it. Because, again, if you're there, you're going to be picking. You're going to be eating and grabbing and then say, why did I do that? Well, because it was availability. It was right there. It's that mindless eating then we get into. That's very interesting. <clears throat> How about when you're doing the preparing yourself for the dinners or for the foods? Are there healthier choices that you can make? as the person who's pro providing the food? Oh, definitely, I think. I think you can get into more fruits and vegetables. We can try, like, more different vegetables that people maybe haven't tried. We can do different grains. I think you can try maybe some of the different types of fruits that are out there, like star fruit and things that people say, well, I've looked at that, but I've never seen it, or different ones that are some tropical ones and serve those as, like, a fruit, you know, with a fruit tray. Um, and you can make different things. I love the new Greek yogurts that are out there, so you can make dips with the Greek yogurts. You can put fruit. You could put a little onion seasoning, those kinds of things, making them a different kind of dip along that way. So not only in terms of how you respond to the holiday, but in terms of what you offer if mm -hmm. you are the hostess or you host. You definitely offer, I think, You can offer choices. healthier choices. Mm -hmm. So where can people, I mean, generally, where would you recommend people look for resources for this kind of thing? Um, well, I think... Uh, there's a couple great websites. I tend to use ones um, from the Diabetes Association, and there's a couple good ones out there that are um, geared towards diabetics. And why I like those, it's not just with diabetes, it's because they have the calorie value. So people can look at the fat content, they can look at the carbs, they can look at the sodium. I like to be able to look at a recipe and say, okay, this is how you can use it if you're looking at sodium or you're looking at carbs, those kinds of things. So there's some great ones out there. Um, there's tons of information now on people's iPhones that they can look up. And I think that's an important thing. You can look up oh, I was going to go into this restaurant, and this is what I was going to eat. And you look it up your phone and go, oh, well, I'm not <laughs> <Maybe> eating Maybe not. <laughs> and there's um, probably about 10 different apps that are out there, and those are great things in terms of And there's a lot of good resource books out there, Well, too. that sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. My, oh, my guest has been Maureen Franklin, registered dietitian with Upstate Medical University at Community General. Lots of great tips for us. Thanks, Maureen. You're welcome. editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Joanne Clarkson published her fourth book of poetry, Believing the Body, last year. In her poem today, she reminds us of the old-fashioned and dearly missed house call. This poem, The Breath Mirror, gently reminds us of the good death 
that could occur at home when the doctor came to visit. The breath mirror. They say that on calm nights after a death, you can hear the clop-clop of the old physician's horse, creak of buggy wheels traveling back roads. Hoof prints and grooves guide the sway-backed pony homeward, doctor's body nodding, slack with weariness. Maybe the crossing was better then. No pulsing lights blinding the dilated pupil or screen-tracking mountains no real heart traveled. No machine forcing oxygen where lavender and leavened bread suffice. Curtains move wind into midnight. A cool rag is turned, rinsed, wrung, and turned again. Sighs sift forgiveness. From the hallway, hinge and a candle. Opiate seeps bitter between flaking lips as the chest stills. Then he who has sworn to first do no harm slips a flat plate of silver where no mist condenses, calls this his breath mirror, though made for beauty, heads home, wiping souls from its face. For joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we learn about a new treatment for prostate cancer, how to improve indoor air quality, and how keeping your pets healthy may improve your own health. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.